Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and as often as I can, I try to jump back in front of the microphone, I have a different role in the network now, and interview the author of a book that I find particularly interesting. And today, I'm very happy to say that at long last, I'll be talking with Clara Clark about her terrific book, The Recovery Revolution, The Battle Over Addiction Treatment in the United States. This is one of my pet topics. I've been involved in the recovery community for 13 years now. And I'm always interested to read what serious-minded researchers have to say about the history of recovery in the United States and also elsewhere. We did a book on uh, the treatment of alcoholism and drug addiction in the Soviet Union, which was fascinating as well. But I'm particularly interested in the recovery movement, I guess you would call it, in the United States. I really enjoyed this book, and I encourage you to go out and read it. Claire, in any event, thank you for writing the book, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marshall. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I was dual trained in both history of medicine and behavioral science. I got a PhD and an MPH at Emory University. And I currently teach in the University of Kentucky's College of Medicine in the Department of Behavioral Science. So can you tell us why you wrote The Recovery Revolution? Sure. So I, I guess like many of the folks you interview, um, my, my book started as a dissertation. Um, and when I applied to graduate school and interviewed at Emory, um, I was coming from a kind of media and cultural studies background, and I was sort of interested vaguely in therapeutic culture. Um, and I interviewed with the person who had become my advisor, Howard Kushner, who is a historian of medicine. And in our interview, he gave me a book which had just been issued in the United States. It's called What's Wrong with Addiction by Helen Keene. And he said, someone has written the book that you proposed to write or dissertation that you proposed to write. And it was a phenomenal book. And of course, he was right. Um, And he did sort of two really smart things when he handed me that book. Um, And the first one was to tell me not to write something that someone else had done, obviously. Um, And the the second thing he did was a little bit more subtle, which was to push me to expand my evidence base as kind of a a cultural studies person. I was very used to just analyzing things on the level of text. And my advisor really pushed me um, into doing more archival work and and more, I guess, what you could call empirical research. Um, so that was sort of the first part of the genesis of the book. The second part was that my second semester, my first year of graduate school, there was a large conference at Emory um, bringing together historians and scientists and different people who were studying addiction. And at that conference, I met David Courtright, who's a very well-known historian of addiction. And he handed me a card um, which was the contact for uh, a bunch of oral history interviews that he had done. I believe he he and his uh, colleagues completed them in 1981 um, with people who had 
a cent- who had been in addiction treatment in mid twentieth cent in the mid twentieth century United States, and also with a bunch of treatment leaders. And um, those primary sources were really kind of the, the genesis of where this project came from. That's terrific. It's a terrific story. It sounds like you had a great advisor. Oh, I he's 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 still a great advisor. Well, right. And that first piece of advice, your book is already written. Hard to beat that one. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about avoiding big mistakes. Yeah. Well, he saved you a lot of time. Um, so in any event, could you, let's get into the material in the book. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the prospects for recovering from, well, first of all, the diagnosis of and the prospects for recovering uh, from um, drug addiction prior to what you call in your book, the recovery revolution, which begins in the late fifties and really centers around the genesis of, of a pretty common thing today. And that is um, therapeutic communities, places where people go and live in order to get better. Sure. So well, can you talk about that early history? I can. So there were two sort of treatment eras that came before the one that I talk about in my book. Um, and the first one was really um, in the, the, mid to late um, 19th century, there was a paradigm for understanding addiction that was called any inebriety. Um, and it, it's it's a understanding of addiction that's actually very similar to the one we have today in the sense that um, addiction was more understood as a process that was that had sort of both behavioral and biological and, psychological or even moral components, um, and that it was the same kind of diagnostic category, no matter what the substance was. So you could have inebriety having to do with tobacco or having to do with alcohol or having to do with narcotics. Um, And so treatment centers um, at that time were uh, really, really more of kind of a catch-all. And so you had asylums, some publicly funded ones, but a lot more sort of private ones. That model of addiction treatment was, for various reasons, discredited. And by the 19-teens and 1920s, what had been, compared to what came later, a, a pretty extensive network of, of treatment centers had, had pretty much entirely dried up. And as most most people probably know, right, in the 19-teens and 1920s, um, the way that the nation, the U.S. decided to deal with substance use was to start outlawing things. So, you know, outlawing narcotics and and then outlawing alcohol. Um, What happens with the repeal of alcohol prohibition is that um, really the the kind of that kind of diagnostic category of inebriety, which was already on the downfall, really uh, kind of splintered. And so the way that scientists and treatment centers started to deal with narcotic addiction, and by that I mean mainly heroin um, versus alcohol to a a sort of lesser extent cocaine. Um, And then an alcoholism or alcohol addiction were two sort of very different things. So that people who were addicted to narcotics in by sort of mid 20th century, really, there were there were sort of very few options for treatment. Um, The way that the nation decided to address treatment was to invest in two what 
They're kind of colloquially known as narcotics farms or federal narcotics hospitals. There's one here in Lexington, Kentucky, where I now teach and live, and then there was one in Fort Worth, Texas. And so those narcotics hospitals, they had some people that would sign up for treatment voluntarily and then some people who would be sort of sent there by the criminal justice system. But if you were if you had a problem with narcotics from about the 1930s until about the 1950s, um, really 60s, those were your, your two main options um, for getting treatment. Mm-hmm. And how big were these narcotics farms? They were run by the Fed, right? That's right. They were run by the U.S. Public Health Service. Mm-hmm. Um, they were... Relatively, you don't have to know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know the. I, don't exact, I, I, can, I can't tell you. I could. Yeah. I could dig through my files and pull yeah. up the records that I have to look at the exact statistics, but um, I, I couldn't tell you the exact. Yeah. Well, judging by the picture of at least people. one of them, which is a quite beautiful Art Deco building, does it still exist? Um, is the building? It does. Exist? Yes. It does. It does. Yeah, it's a very nice building. So, <laughs> they were big. It's a prison. They were really big. Now. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, and what did people do at these narcotics farms? Well, there were a, a sort of wide variety of, of types of treatments there. So there were group therapy. There were group therapy sessions. There were individual psychoanalytic therapy sessions. There was um, experiment. There was an experimental wing where um, different types of scientific experiments having to do with drug addiction were run. Um, so it was really kind of a, a hodgepodge of different treatment models. People were looking to see what might work. Um, and what, you know, um, um, emerged out of the, the lesson that is told, and it's told in other places. So, um, you know, Nancy Campbell, J.P. Olson, and Luke Wilson, and, and um, Luke Walden have a lovely documentary about this in a book that goes into the whole history. And then Nancy Campbell's dis- discovering addiction, uh, and Carolyn Acker's creating the American Junkie, sort of deal with this history in more depth if people are interested in, in looking into it. But one of the ma- major lessons to come out of, of the, this experiment was that this notion of kind of corralling people who struggled with addiction into a central location and then sending them back to their communities where they have their same social networks, their same triggers, um, very little support for behavioral change was unlikely to promote long-term recovery and that many, many people relapsed under those conditions. So mm-hmm. by, um, and this is sort of leading up to, to really where the narrative in my book starts, by the late 1950s, there was starting to be some kind of, and, and early 1960s, some kind of recognition that there needed to be a wider treatment system. And you really start to see the transition to a more community-based model of formal treatment by that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well, let's jump forward to, um, I don't know if uh, it or he is the protagonist of your book, but plays a major role, and that is Charles Chuck Diedrich. Is that right? Again, I can't get his name right. Is his uh, name Diedrich. right? Diedrich. Diedrich, yes, I'm sorry about that. Uh, the founder of uh, an institution called Synanon, which, as I say, I did not know about. Could you tell us about that story? Sure. So Synanon um, was a spinoff of AA, and uh, it's people who have heard of Synanon probably know it kind of in the tradition of new religious movements or cults because it devolved somewhat famously. Um, the story that I'm interested in or was interested in telling about it was sort of how some of the public relations and branding and therapeutic model 
sort of laid the groundwork for addiction treatment. So it's influence on addiction treatment rather than it's kind of very dramatic rise and fall as an organization. Um, but really what, what Synanon did was, uh, so it's, it's, so the, the founder, Charles Diederich was, was an AA member. He was in recovery from alcoholism. Um, he was a salesman by training and he saw a kind of market opportunity in the late 1950s for the treatment of people who were struggling with drug addiction. It was a, it was getting to be a, a kind of, um, you know, with, with, uh, the subculture of jazz coming to more prominence. It was getting to be a more recognizable kind of social problem. And like I said before, the, the federal narcotics farms were coming to be widely seen as sort of massive failures. Mm-hmm. And folks were, and all, all kinds of, there, there were various constituencies who were kind of casting about for an alternative. So he saw kind of a market opening there. Um, and what, what he did with Synanon was to take the AA model and adapt it in a couple of critical ways. Um, so the, the first one probably being that AA, is, as you know, is, is really, it's, a, it's peer support. It's not treatment. It's self-supported. You know, AA groups don't bill to insurance companies. And he really wanted a treatment center that was going to be really an enterprise, essentially, right, that was was going to make money, um, could potentially even be recognized as, as being a medical treatment um, instead of just sort of peer support. Um, so he really had a, had a plan to kind of corporatize the treatment model. Um, the second thing that he did was um, AA, there's, there is this tradition in which um, – you're probably familiar, you're not supposed to cross talk. So people share their stories and then everyone listens, understanding, you know, and with, with kind of sympathy. And then you talk to your sponsor afterwards, or you work out the details mm-hmm. of what you're going to do outside the context of the group meeting. Well, the, the, the kind of prominent notion about people who are struggling with narcotic addiction at the time was that they were incorrigible human beings, that they were in denial, that they were um, sort of seriously dysfunctional, and that they needed a kind of tougher therapeutic intervention than AA. So um, so throwing out that whole no crosstalk thing and turning meetings into essentially what, what was called sort of confrontational therapy, where um, the other members of the group through confronting each other, sort of break down the defenses that they've built up. Um, and then the idea is that outside the group setting, the community helps you remake your personality in some more healthy and beneficial way. Um, so, th- so those are two things. First, the intention to really um, turn the model into an enterprise. Second, the, the kind of confrontational nature and in 1958, there was a, apparent. This was apparently a very appealing idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. people people glommed onto it. Even though, let me just take a step back. Diedrich made all this up, right? I mean, this was his intuition about this. This is not based on research. He didn't talk to doctors. He didn't uh, conduct experiments and focus groups. Well, he didn't it, do anything. It came out of um, it came out of the experiences of of the the sort of group of folks that he had assembled. So it uh-huh. was kind of it kind of schismed off of a um, an AA group in Southern California. At it's, funny, it's funny you mentioned this because if you've, you know, if you've been in AA as long as I have, you, you hear stories about what are essentially called rogue AA groups 
that they always tend to move in this direction is the first thing they do is they say, okay, we're going to allow crosstalk, <laughs> which, which in AA is a big no-no. <laughs> I've never been to one of these meetings, but you hear about them all the time. I remember there was one in DC in the 19, I, no, early 2000s where it went rogue and it had kind of a cultish leader and, you know, they, they were allowing, there's even a place in the, I think it's in the big book or the 12 and 12 where, um, Bill Wilson says, you know, we've determined that what he calls the, I like, I like this expression a lot, the frothy emotional appeal right. <laughs> does not work. Right. <laughs> but to A, meetings will sometimes tend in that direction under certain kinds of leadership. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me that it kind of organically evolved out of a, I, I, I don't know, rogue A group. It's hard to call anything a rogue A, a group because A really doesn't have that many rules and it certainly has no one to enforce them. So it's hard to to say they're rogue because it just is what it is. Um, So, so, so he, he uh, develops this model. Is there a name for this kind of thing? Does he give it a name? Well, okay. So, so the name Synanon, there are sort of various origin stories about where it came from. So, you know, some people say it's, it was someone bungling, trying to pronounce symposium or seminar and some of the early press about Synanon, uh, it talks about Synanon as being kind of Sinners Anonymous, which mm. um, is, if if that origin story is accurate, I mean, it is a kind of callback to the sort of Victorian notion of inebriety, right? And that mm-hmm. all sins are kind of the same. So that, you know, and, and it fits in keeping with the sort of ideology of the, the treatment, um, which is that it's it is designed to remake your sort of whole personality it not just stop a single behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one thing that I do try to get across in the book is that part of the reason why there was this kind of market opportunity is also because there were really a lack of therapeutic options for people who were disenchanted with the narcotics hospitals who maybe were unsuccessful in psychoanalysis, which might have been another option if you had um, quite a bit of money. And so, um, so, so really, you know, it, it was in some ways a kind of grassroots movement of people who had been sort of cut out of really any kind of effective mainstream medical treatment um, and had a lack of therapeutic options. And they said, well, we're going to organize ourselves and we're going to invent our own treatment and we're going to promote it. And, and what, I mean, really the story is that what these sort of recovery revolutionaries did is they, they made a kind of Faustian bargain essentially because in sort of taking control of their own destiny and saying, if, you know, we're, the current treatments are failing us and we're going to treat ourselves. But the way that in doing that, the way that they went about selling that treatment in some ways intentionally reinforced all of the very worst stereotypes about people with addiction. So it wound up backfiring in some fairly tragic ways. And this, this, I think if I could editorialize for a second, I don't know if it's editorializing or simply uh, stating historical opinion. This is where, Bill Wilson and that group were really very clever very early on. They did toy with the idea of opening a series of treatment centers for alcoholics, but they decided essentially to make the groups independent of one another and especially 
to double down on the anonymity aspect of it. And what they say is, in the big book, they say that they, they wanted to be anonymous because they, they, they were afraid that if they weren't anonymous, that too many unrecovered alcoholics, practicing alcoholics, would beat down their doors and their lives would be ruined. But that isn't really true. Um, the reason I think that they emphasized anonymity was so they wouldn't have dramatic failures in the press. And it worked pretty well, right? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You can't really say it's a failure if you don't know anyone in AA. There's <laughs> also what you see yeah. in, in putting the burden of proving that, or attempting to prove that people who are struggling with addictions of various types, when you put it on those people, um, it also cr- creates a tremendous burden and stress. Yeah, um, and, and you see um, sort of center after center kind of collapse yeah, under that as well. It does. It does. But the, the shield of anonymity has worked really well for AA because, you know, again, I'm a big proponent of Alcoholics Anonymous that saved my life and so on and so forth. But it's a very, it's a very clever organization. It, it does what it does very well. And I think it's largely because it didn't go the route of Synanon and into the public sphere where it could be measured and poked and probed and criticized and Things like this, which is eventually what happened to Synanon, is, is that it it became it became famous. I mean, really famous, and the people in it uh, became public figures, as as in the case of uh, Diedrich. He became exactly, famous. and and that's and and what you've hit on there is when people ask what's the difference between AA and therapeutic communities. That's the difference. You've just yeah. sort of summed it up really nicely. Well, and also and also, although there are a lot of you know, there's uh, there there are there are a lot of therapeutic communities for alcoholics. We just generally call them halfway houses or something like that. But um, that's an important difference as well, is, is that I, I think what uh, Diedrich had in mind was um, was a place where you lived, right? It, from the very beginning, he wanted people to live there. He wanted it residential treatment. Is that right? Whereas AA isn't like that. There's no residential AA. Right. But there was also a need for residential treatment yeah, in sure. this population not, at the time. Yeah, I'm not saying there, there wasn't. These people were largely indigent. And there's another kind of aspect of this, too, that sort of it ties into a book that I did a long time ago called by a historian, and I don't remember his name, um, but he wrote a book called Smack. Are you familiar with this book? Yes, it, Eric Schneider. Yes, exactly. And he wrote this book about essentially how the heroin culture in the 19, late 1940s and early 1950s went from black to white. It started among black jazz musicians as a kind of a cool thing to do. And then jazz became popular, and then white populations started to do heroin. And you can kind of see that once that happens, then there's money behind it, and the situation that gives... Uh, Chuck Diedrich, his, his opportunity to found Synanon, suddenly there's a kind of pool of resources that's ready to be put behind this enterprise. Because the, the other thing you haven't said, I mean, you did say it, but and I think this is something the alcoholics run into sometimes too, is, is that there just weren't any alternatives in the medical community. If you read the introduction to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, essentially the doctor's opinion, he says, we have no cure for this and you're going to die. <laughs> that's, that's not what you want to hear when you go to a doctor. Right, especially if it's your son or daughter. Like, sorry, no cure for this. That's it. It's done. You need something, and I think that what right. you know, and Bill so, Wilson and did and what Charles did, Charles Edrick did, is they created something. Exactly, and so there's. I mean, there's ways in which it's a. It, I mean, it is a revolution because it's a revolution against the existing options, and yeah. um, and it's um, and it's an alternative to the way that people have been sort of locked out of of the medical system and medical treatment. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's the la- you know, right. They say in AA sometimes it's the <laughs> the last house on the block, the last one you go to, and it's kind of true. But there really aren't any. You know, what other option is there? I, I get frustrated with people that say, you know, this or that would work better than AA. I'm like, well, you should definitely 
<laughs> start that program <laughs> because uh, we need it badly. Right. But anyway, let's go back to go back to go back to Chuck and his endeavor. Sure. So so part of so part of um, another thing that kind of interested me about this topic, which has to do with sort of what are the different therapeutic options, because now obviously there there are more therapeutic options, is the way in which treatment is kind of. Um, is branded. And all this could be all kinds of, of psychotherapies, right? So that if somebody, somebody could say that they're, you know, they do yoga, they do life coaching, they do support groups, they do therapy, um, you know, um, and, and those, whether different types of treatments are considered sort of hip and desirable, or are considered stigmatized, varies across time as they kind of rise and fall. If you think about psychoanalysis being the treatment model in the mid 20th century, and now nobody does it. Right. Um, and they also vary depending on people's so social location. Um, so the, the story, well, it's funny you mentioned, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. But it's funny you mentioned psychoanalysis because I was sort of that. I, nobody does it. I'm sure you didn't mean that, but, uh, it turns out a lot of people do it and they're in New York city. Well, right, exactly, but no, but not across the country anymore. No, but I mean, exactly. you know, you're right about the geolocality. I mean, the locality. I mean, they're in New York City. I mean, we run have a channel called Do Books and Psychoanalysis, and they're a bunch of analysts, and they live in New York, and they have a bunch of patients, and they're in New York. So right, yeah, I, or I'm or for example, that. you know, or Alcoholics Anonymous. So you know, I I grew up and have spent much of my life in in the Southern United States, and for mm -hmm. many communities here, it's sort of not religious enough. Um, it's, it's it's heretical, right? And Whereas among, up here, among it's just the opposite, right? Among academics who are kind of yeah. more secular leftists, it's it's the right. opposite. So, so Sinanon and and we'll get into the therapeutic communities that came later are a really good example of the way that treatments develop kind of brands and they become either mm -hmm. desirable and they become stigmatized. And then that has public health implications, um, and you know whether or not people want to enroll in them, for example. Um, so, um, and Synanon in 1958, I mean, it, it, uh, AA had a kind of a, I, I don't call it slow because by the standards of the development of national institutions or even international institutions, it was very fast. Uh, it, it had grown very large over about three decades, um, into the millions of people, but Synanon took off much more quickly, didn't it? It, yes, it did. So, um, so. I mean, by just just one quick thing, or, or indication of that, it's founded in 1958. In 1965, there's a Hollywood film about it. Is that right? Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and in 1960, when, when John F. Kennedy is, um, comes into office, there there's on the federal level, people are in, are looking at what are some some different alternatives for for treatment, and there is some some high profile. Meetings right. are convened, and you know the people who are there to represent. The constituency, the people who need treatment, are are from Sinanon. Um, mm -hmm. So they insert themselves into into policy debates at the national level really relatively quickly. And yes, they um, the film that comes out in 1965 is kind of a fictionalization of a series of news articles that. Um, they sort of coordinated leading up to that point. Um, so, so they do. They come to prominence relatively quickly at sort of right place, right time. And, and initially, it's a uh, – you call them therapeutic communities. In other words, it's a place where you move and you stay there and you undergo whatever sort of therapies they have. In this case, they have the synonym game, which is what we just described. That is where they have this kind of, 
I guess I would call it tough love kind of peer counseling. And uh, you live in, an, I don't know if it's a total institution, but it's an institution that regulates your life very closely. But then pretty quickly, uh, it's open to people that aren't addicts. How does that happen? Right. So, um, so at, and this is why I kind of move on from at around 1965, I start kind of moving the book start starts sort of moving away from a close discussion of sin and on to looking at the what are called second generation therapeutic communities that spun off of sin and on. And I were much more influential in terms of addiction treatment writ large in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because sin and on starts, um, marketing itself sort of transforms to marketing itself as kind of a a social movement um, and less concerned with sort of solving the addiction problem and more like a kind of utopian vision of an alternative society. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while they they do continue to to treat people, uh, that sort of the nature of the organization changes. Um, and the way that they go about sort of recruiting people into it changes and, um, the decision to, the decision to align themselves really with sort of the addiction treatment enterprise lessens somewhat. Um, and, and many of the, the people who became sort of influential founders or co-founders or early members of the therapeutic communities that came later, are sort of leave soon on and, and go on to found these second generation centers. Right. But j- just to be clear, and you haven't said it, but I, I think it's a proper characterization. It becomes a full on religious movement. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just full blown religious movement with uh, Charles Diedrich at its head. That's correct. Yes. Right. So and there are it. plenty of books on, there are plenty of books mm-hmm. on that. They're sort of, um, they're all, in the bibliography, right? Um, it's, it's sort of, and, and, and that's, you know, largely synonym when it has been studied, it's been sort of studied from that angle. And so, yes, full on religious movement with forced vasectomies with, this is much later and, you know, taking up weapons and all of, all of the, all of there, there are a lot of sensational things that I, I could have gone into, but, um, I, I sort of move along into looking at really, um, the influence that it had on the the centers that came. Right. Well, let's talk about that second that second generation, which, as you say, is much more influential. I mean, and the descendants of that second generation are still around. Right. Uh, so, so go ahead and talk a little bit about them. Sure. So, um, so some of Sinanon's early leaders leave, um, and they they go on to found centers in New York. Um, and so some of the most prominent ones that are still around today are Phoenix House is a big one, um, Daytop which was incorporated into a different center is still around today. Um, and the, what distinguishes those therapeutic communities, and that was the, the, the term that they, um, they adopted, um, what distinguishes them from Synanon is really um, the idea to kind of, to, to become a legitimate medical treatment in the sense that they would employ people to do research, they would apply for federal grant money, they would do outcome studies. Um, And so to to kind of, to take this grassroots movement and to mainstream it somewhat and and attempt to medicalize it somewhat. Um, What happens is there, with with some some of the early data from those, centers, um, 
and some of the early kind of anecdotes of uh, successful uh, treatment cases get taken into account when on a, on a more national level, under Richard Nixon, um, the nation starts looking at investing in some different treatment models, really scaling up community-based treatment across the nation. Mm-hmm. And, and about how many of these second-generation institutions are there? And they also get, they, they become very organized at this point. They get a professional association, don't they? Or That's right. They, yeah, yeah, Therapeutic Communities of America. Um, and that, that comes about in kind of the early, mid-1970s, uh, now called Treatment Communities of America. Um, and yes, and they, they become they, uh, competitive for grant dollars, which um, federal grant money starts by under, under the Nixon administration, um, starts to become available for funding addiction treatment and for studying addiction treatment. Uh, and so, you know, these these centers start to to try to you know position themselves as really kind of the vanguard of of a new nationwide addiction treatment infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And and are they or do we know were they effective at that time? This was and they were founded in the mid '60s and early '70s. This is that right? The second generation around that's then. R- yeah, that's right. Um, the, the the first couple were sort of like early 60s, and, and then mm-hmm. you start to see more and more as kind of the 60s go on, and then in the early yeah. 70s. Daytop is the first of them, if I recall, mm-hmm. right? Daytop yeah. comes from Synanon directly. That's yeah. that's right, and so does Phoenix House. Um, uh-huh. Well, so the book, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty careful about saying that it's I, – I don't make clinical recommendations. Okay. Um, so it's not really about what's more or less effective. I can tell you – some kind of themes in the research about them. Um, So that they were, so the model is still based on a kind of psychopathology model and that you want to, um, and and, you know, a more positive way to say it would be that it's a more holistic view of the disorder. And so they were looking, um, the early studies are, they're looking at things like like recidivism, recidivism and criminality, because a lot of, you know, they, they don't mm-hmm. want to see people re-offending. And a lot of the impetus for providing funding for this sort of thing was as criminal justice prevention, right? Um, but they were also looking at what are some different indices of psychopathology and things like that. So there, you know, there are sort of various scales that look at how, people have been, how thoroughly people have been kind of psychologically transformed by, by the treatment. Um, and then they also look at, um, you know, length of abstinence was, was a a sort of major indicator, um, how long people stay abstinent. The, the biggest finding from some of those early studies was that the longer people stayed in a therapeutic community, the more likely their outcomes were to be on those various measures once they were released, which kind of makes sense, um, people who leave, right. They probably leave, mm-hmm. um, for, you know, because they didn't want to continue with treatment also. Right. Um, but that, but there was almost a dose response relationship, um, with the amount of time that somebody stayed in a community and then how well they were able to improve. Hmm. Um, and then that allowed people who were prom- proponents of the model to make an argument for a really holistic, long-term residential form of treatment. 
Um, is that how, where we get? Is that where we get ninety days or something? How, was it, I mean, uh, uh, twenty eight days. Oh <laughs> uh, well, so that was actually I'm, I I think that came later and with with um, oh, really? with managed care and and that okay. was a problem for for advocates of the therapeutic community yeah. who believe okay. that yeah. you know a person needs to be completely transformed by treatment right. and that it's a right. very sort of long term rigorous right. process. Um, right. But at this time, you know, there. Folks were getting support for putting somebody in treatment for a year and a half, two uh-huh. years, um, and it's it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's in some ways it's sort of unsurprising that, as you said, if if you put somebody in a completely different social environment for that length of time, that they would change in important ways, right? Sure. So, sure. sure. So one of the things in your book that kind of, I, I guess I kind of do this, I don't know, but the, the, the Nixon administration in particular seemed to be quite interested in um, what we would call uh, even kinder and gentler ways to deal with addicts. So you, you do a, bit of, a little bit of rehabilitation of Richard Nixon. Um, the other thing that, that happened, uh, I think it was during Nixon's uh, presidency, was the introduction of, um, and this was a, a, a revolution, uh, methadone maintenance treatment. Uh, how did that uh, affect the therapeutic communities in that movement? Sure. So methadone treatment um, is uh, it's what we call today, you know, medication-assisted therapy. Um, and that was really, that emerged in the mid-1960s uh, as a, a kind of, I guess, people within the therapeutic community movement characterized it as a sort of stark contrast, almost like a uh, a villain or something, you know, in contrast to their treatment model. But, um, but methadone is a medication assisted therapy that really, um, helped people who were struggling with narcotic addiction, reduce their craving and met their, their bio, helped, helped reduce some of the kind of like biological urge to use. Um, people in the therapeutic community movement were coming from a, a philosophy of total abstinence. Um, and so there was kind of rhetoric around any kind of medication assisted therapy as being like a form of false consciousness or substituting one drug for another sort of thing. Um, what's interesting is that even though methadone, there are some very famous studies that show that it, it helps bring down criminality in districts that are affected by, um, you know, up sort of upticks in heroin use. Um, and that's really where the Nixon administration becomes interested in investing in addiction treatment is as a form of kind of crime control, which was a major political concern of his. Um, and the, the sort of the drug czar that Nixon, Nixon appoints, Jerry Jaffe, um, has worked both with medication-assisted treatments with methadone and with therapeutic communities. And when he's kind of ushered in, he's he's sort of one of the few people that has a kind of more ecumenical attitude about it. And he believes that these different types of treatment can be used in combination. Um, and he also, he has, has a kind of let a, you know, thousand flowers bloom attitude towards treatment that the government should just fund the different models and then it's up to the people who need the treatment to decide what will work best for them. And it's also kind of like make the nation a laboratory and see what works. Um, so that's that's what happens with, with the federal funding in the 1970s is that you see um, a major federal investment in methadone, but you also see some of the therapeutic communities at the time um, begin to have influx of federal funds. And um, less commonly, you do start to see some centers that kind of 
attempt to combine the two models um, with Gateway, which was the center that Jaffe was involved with in Chicago before coming to work in the Nixon administration, being kind of a, a pioneer in that movement toward integration. Mm-hmm. But th- what does the medical establishment say about methadone at the time? Well, which part of the medical establishment? Oh, what I mean is, I, I mean, people that actually treat uh, drug addicts and, uh, and alcoholics. So I guess my question is, if I remember correctly from the book, that the medical establishment is actually quite keen on methadone because it doesn't really buy uh, the therapeutic community uh, method. Um, and also policymakers uh, and are, are very keen on it because it seems to offer uh, mitigation of harm, if not um, recovery. Do I remember that's, that? That's yeah, no, that's that's correct. Um, and it is a it's a more uh, it's a more medical model of treatment. So um, mm-hmm. so it's it's sort of you know it's run by doctors, right? Predominantly not sort of people in recovery right. who've come up the ranks, um, right. and. And these are people and, with, with, right, and it can be scaled up relatively right. quickly, right? And it so, was scaled so up. It was, it was scaled up relatively quickly because if your treatment model is requiring people to be in a community for two years, right, and then go on to lead another community, that's going to take a very long time to sort of propagate if you if, if you right but the legacy of method i don't mean again i'm mm-hmm. not talking about the effectiveness of method it is effective in terms of harm reduction at least social harm reduction but you know i live in a very uh, nice town in western massachusetts uh, where people are uh, you know pretty well to do and so on and so forth and uh, there's a methadone clinic half a mile from my house and there's a line in front of it every day it's downtown, right? Just for convenience' sake, next to the expensive apartments and yeah. stuff. So uh, that stuff spread like wildfire, and you can easily see why doctors and policymakers would get behind it. It could be was, right. It, it could be scaled up quickly. It was a yeah. It, it was is a much more medical model of treatment. Those yeah, and so was there a uh, a struggle between the proponents of methadone in terms of uh, a struggle for federal dollars? I mean, between the proponents of methadone and the TCs. They were they were both kind of making the case for funds at the same time, and mm-hmm. um, and with and the methadone people would say, you know, therapeutic communities are um, they're cultish, they're unscientific, you know, they're et cetera, et cetera. And then the therapeutic mm-hmm. community people would say, you know, the methadone is just trading one drug for the other. It doesn't address all of the sort of various social components that we need to pay attention to in dealing with addiction, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting because a lot of those same debates, um, sort of pitting the two models in contrast with each other persist today, um, mm-hmm. where many, I was going to say the same thing, right. Yeah. They persist it, it today really in the do. United States and they've been interestingly, you know, they're that they're, they're exported to other countries even, right. you know, yeah. when, well, I, and you know, I know some heroin addicts or people in recovery from heroin and they will say the same thing about methadone. That is, it's just substitutes one drug for another. And it, it is helpful in the sense that they're uh, not out robbing jewelry stores anymore, but, uh, they're still addicts. And they still act like addicts. So, I, I mean, I'm not taking a stance on this. I'm just well. But, but the genesis of these debates is really this period from yeah, the, this is the, what I'm the, saying. like 1965 up until the early 1970s, really. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know that the one thing you point out in the book, and this is a fascinating thing to me because I, I I see it sometimes when I go to AA meetings, is that 
there was a lot of faith, at least in the criminal justice system, put in um, therapeutic um, treatments. I don't know if that's redundant or not. But, you know, just to give you an example, so at an AA meeting, you'll commonly see people come in who've been mandated by the courts. Uh, and this happened as well with uh, narcotic treatment, right? Were people mandated to the TCs? Were, did the courts get involved? They did. And so, you know, I, I think that um, when sort of when, when Jerry Jaffe said, you know, we should like we should have therapeutic communities available and we should have methadone available. And then in sort of like an, an ideal therapeutic utopia, people would just they would all be um, run and on the up and up and people would choose the centers that are most compatible with their own belief system and mm-hmm. ideology. That would be great. Um, the However, um, when the, the funding model shifted, when funding models shift, then sometimes treatment centers are looking for other ways to get kind of influx of dollars. Um, and so therapeutic communities did by, did start to rely on, well, they relied on, they always relied on for referrals from probation officers and things like that, but they came sort of increasingly to be relying on, um, referrals from the criminal justice system mm-hmm. sort of into mm-hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. And what did the, what did the, did the therapeutic communities like these referrals or I know at AA there's sometimes talk, I won't name any names obviously, cause I don't know any names uh, that court mandating is a bad thing. You should walk in on your own two feet. Was there any opinion in the late sixties, early seventies about the courts getting involved in sending people to TCs? If you don't know, you don't know. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I, um, I don't think I address that directly in the yeah, book. I, I mean, I, I do think that the yeah. I do think that the model um, presumes that if you could that once you get someone in, if they stay in for a long enough time, they'll be transformed, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But that if they drop out early, then they don't get the benefits of treatment. So, yeah. um, so it, I think in, in that sense, it might be less important how, how important how they get there, and more important yeah. whether they stay there. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's tough in that case to decide which way the causality goes, though. I mean, it you is. know, like somebody <laughs> somebody comes to AA and actually stays and gets clean and stays sober for 20 years. Maybe you just say, well, they were ready. <laughs> AA didn't do anything for them. On the other hand, you can say, well, they, they actually stuck it out. And after five years, they realized the promises, as we say, and they stayed clean. So I don't know which way that goes. I, I really don't. I will say this, though, um, just as a digression, uh, the first – I'm actually leafing through the book – my listeners can probably hear that the first line in your book, I thought was just one of the best things I've ever read because it really needs to be, it needs to be expressed to a lot of people who think about these issues. And I'll just read it. Preface. The majority of people with substance use problems solve them without formal addiction treatment or 12 step groups. And that's true. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Most people who uh, have problems with drugs and alcohol, they don't use any of these things. So I was very glad to see your book open with that. Oh, so, well, thank you. Because I really, I read that. I'm just like, I like this book already. <laughs> because I think that's generally too. Spontaneous remission is, is, is the most common way in which people kick, I think. It was, didn't work for me, but I think it does work for a lot of people. So let's, let's go on with the book in another era. One thing I like about your book is you talk about these eras. And so we, uh, I'm, uh, I remember very well the crack epidemic and um, Nancy Reagan's uh, drug tour. Just say no. So can you talk to us a little bit about that and the way to impacted the therapeutic communities? Sure. So, um, so therapeutic communities got a kind of boon, at least a, a rhetorical boon from, um, 
the sort of drug war policies of, of the 1980s um, because, uh, again, it was a kind of abstinence-based treatment, which was very compatible with the kind of the national campaign of, of just say no. Um, and in fact, when, when Nancy Reagan sort of uh, first launched her campaign, she launched it at a therapeutic community treatment centers, and mm-hmm. she became interested in it um, because of people that she knew socially who, who were affiliated with therapeutic communities. Um, and part of why I, I say this story is, is a bit of a Faustian bargain is because um, in, in this case, I think many folks within the therapeutic community movement expected to see some or some some more federal dollars coming from the kind of PR campaigns that they saw being launched. Um, and in this case, really, you know, the, the just say no um, and drug war policies were much more, um, much less interested in investing in treatment, much more interested in urging the privatization of treatment mm-hmm. um, and in kind of, using treatment centers to further their kind of political rhetorical goals. So mm-hmm. unlike under Nixon, where, you know, Nixon visits, you, you, you know, where later on in his career, Nixon visits Daytop and is very complimentary about therapeutic communities. Um, unlike, unlike in the 19. 19- 70s and the 1980s, there there really isn't sort of federal funding that kind of comes behind um, whatever endorsements um, might come along with with the the Reagan era drug policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of a dry season then for the therapeutic communities. Um, well, it they uh, they have to begin they they start courting referrals from the courts um, mm-hmm. and. and, and and finding sort of various other ways to, to stay afloat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, at what point do, uh, and I think our listeners will want to know this, do insurance companies become involved and people begin paying? Well, that's, uh, I think, uh, and that's later, that's, that's a bit later by the, mm-hmm. by the 1990s where you, you start mm-hmm. to, 1980s, 1990s, you start to see a little bit more of the influence of insurance companies. Um, and therapeutic communities have some difficulty adapting to that because the model is much more long-term than insurance companies generally want to pay for. And that's right. when you start to see um, the model moving, or, or I would say they were always kind of present in the prison system, but that's when you start to see more therapeutic communities moving into the prison because it's a long-term treatment model is compatible with um, with a carceral mm-hmm. model in some sense mm-hmm. because you have right. people who are going to be someplace for a year and a half, two years, three right, years. Right. Well, I was thinking about it in the context of privatization, which is, you know, a kind of a drumbeat you hear every time there's a Republican administration, they talk about privatization of this or that. And uh, usually privatization in a the therapeutic sense means insurance companies and private clinics. Um, did this happen to the treatment of people addicted to narcotics? It did. In the 80s, you, what you saw um, addiction treatment shift from um, there were some documents that a, uh, a colleague passed along. Um, and you, you start to see the demographics shift from um, to include sort of more youthful, to en- enlist more youthful people into treatment. And then you start to see a shift from publicly, from 
publicly funded treatment to privately funded treatment mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. occurs in the 80s. Right. There are a lot of places you can go now. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, there are places you can go uh, and get uh, what is essentially residential therapy for narcotic addiction if you have insurance, correct? Um, today or? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are these places. I don't know anything about them, but sure. they do exist. Yeah. Uh -huh. sure. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And they are they related to the therapeutic communities? Do they, do, they, do they adopt practices from the early therapeutic communities? Are they, I mean, did the same people found them that founded therapeutic communities? Or I guess I'm just interested in the, in the issue of privatization and how far it's extended into... Um, drug treatment. I know a little bit about the history of it in terms of alcohol. You know, we could talk a little bit about Betty Ford, if you like, uh, and how kind of a large industry in the Hazleton model and these other things that, that are, are essentially for, I, I think they're for-profit addiction treatment centers, correct? So, yeah. So I, th so I think with, um, with therapeutic communities, in the 80s, if therapeutic communities were getting federal funding, it, it's, it was coming in the form, there, there was more, it was either local or coming in the form of kind of block grants I see. by the okay. 80s yeah. and 90s. Right. Um, and there is a push to, to need to sort to diversify the client base. So that meant that you had to, you were either going to court people who were sort of higher income and had means and had insurance and were going to be able to pay for treatment that way, or you were going to have your clients coming to you as referrals through the criminal justice system or mm -hmm. within the context of prisons. So there mm -hmm. were kind of like various ways that um, the the kind of pure form of the therapeutic community, if you could call it that, a second generation communities, uh, you know, in the 1970s had to change to adapt. So either by moving into the prison system or becoming more entrenched or by changing the model in different ways to accommodate different types of therapies or even medication or shorter stays. So, um, so, so there, so, well, you know, there are centers that you could walk into today. Um, while I was in graduate school, I worked at the CDC and we evaluated a bunch of different types of treatment centers. The variety mm. is, um, is, uh, there's much more variety now than there was in the 1960s. There are some places you can walk into, and it looks like a uh, treatment center straight <laughs> out of 1965 or something. There are a few. There are a handful. Um, but for the most part, there, there you know, there's, uh, there's a lot more um, variety in addiction treatment today and a lot more mm -hmm. choice. Um, mm -hmm. But this issue of branding that I kind of talked about at the beginning that I'm really interested in, I think is still really important because – People, you know, if, if we have a lot of choice, how are people making their decisions about where they want to go? Um, that it has to do with the options that are available to them. But then it also has to do with factor, factors having to do with, you know, the historical moment we're in and their social location. And mm -hmm. so, you know, why why are there the, so people are still making decisions to mm -hmm enroll in abstinence space, right, versus medication and sure, assisted sure, treatment. Sure. So, again, these are not, I, I don't think you answer these questions in the book, but just for curiosity's sake, how many therapeutic communities are there in the United States today? Well, hard to say, because, you know, I think even, um, they, they don't even really call themselves that anymore. 
even no, the really tradi- no, even the really traditional don't. ones. So, <laughs> so branding, the ther- more branding. So, yeah, no. So, so the Therapeutic Communities Association of America, they're the Treatment Communities Association of America, <laughs> and um, and I I Brand think them. you know I I um I think that there are a lot of treatment centers that are influenced by the history and by the model, but even the treatment centers that are part of this kind of historical second generation have changed in really important ways since their founding. So I don't know. I, I, there are probably zero to five in terms of the ones that would call themselves still therapeutic communities. Yeah, today. sure. But there are hundreds of them, aren't there? I mean, I see you, know, you can ride the bus and see advertisements that say, you know, you know somebody in trouble? Well, come to Wellspring where we'll treat you for narcotic addiction. And uh, I don't know what Wellspring is. I mean, I just made that right, up, right. but that's the kind of name they have. And I don't know what sort of cred they have or what sort of... Is there a system for um, authorizing them in any way, you know, accrediting them? Um, there is. It's called CARF, I believe, is the accreditation agency. Um, I And um, so there, there is a system of credentialing. Um, and then if... If centers are are receiving uh, government money, then they do have to meet sort of certain mm-hmm. kinds of metrics, and um, they have to be investigated and things like that. Uh, so mm-hmm. you know there are, are granting requirements and and things as well. So here in Western Massachusetts, and I think in the nation at large, uh, we uh, commonly hear about uh, this thing, the opioid epidemic. I, I don't know whether there is one or not, but I've heard a lot about it. Uh, has there been any response in the therapeutic community? To this, or has the federal government allied with the therapeutic communities to to help in battling this supposed epidemic? And the only reason I say supposed because I haven't done any research on it, and I don't I don't know. But sure. So um, so I actually I published a kind of follow up um, op ed a few weeks ago that had to, cool. to, to that had to do with this. Although it didn't it didn't necessarily deal with therapeutic communities directly, but dealing with sort of like the way that funding for addiction treatment has ebbed and flowed through these various eras, right? From the inebriety asylums to the federal narcotics farms to the scaling up of addiction treatment in the 60s and 70s to now. Um, and, And part of the problem is that we have just, we've never really been able to build a kind of sustainable national infrastructure. There are just huge gaps and cracks that people mm-hmm. fall through and that we have a history in this nation of sort of cyclical funding so that there's some kind of epidemic as there is right now, as there was in the 60s and 70s. We pump a bunch of money into it and then have no sort of political will to sustain that funding. So I'm afraid that that's what's happening now. Um, and one of the, the lessons I, I think that from the book is that um, in making the case for, for, for funding every time this happens, there is a, a way in which sometimes even treatment proponents depict people who are struggling with addiction as being somehow subhuman as being either subhuman or fated to die or already dead or horrible human beings. Um, In addition to pejorative terms like addict, depictions of people as being zombies, etc. In a way that ultimately, I think, works against our ability to summon the political will to have any kind of long-term sustainable treatment infrastructure for people. Yeah, I uh, have, as a former... um, well, I don't know. 
performer anything. <laughs> so who you talk to? As somebody who had real problems with drugs and alcohol at an earlier point in my life, I can tell you that, uh, and still deals with them quite a bit, uh, drug addicts and alcoholics are not the most sympathetic group. <laughs> Let me just say that. <laughs> right, it's true. So when you're trying to make the case for treatment, really, and this is what some reco- some recent research on recovery shows, is what you need to try to do is explain the lifelong process of recovery and how beneficial that is and try to get people to empathize with that because most people can understand going through rough spots in their life and needing some kind of support to get through it right and but they they don't really they don't they understand that addiction is this horrible thing and that people are not sympathetic and blah 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 but they don't really understand what recovery is um and and so that that's that is one of the um the lessons of this this history that that I, I try to tell in the book is that um, that this continual emphasis on being a horrible person and then needing to be yeah. redeemed or needing to be even punished as a form of treatment in some yeah. kind of ways yeah. Um, yeah. is is ultimately sort of detrimental to addiction treatment, kind of writ large. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears, I think is. What I would say to that, uh, I think that one positive development I can tell you in my, my time dealing with these issues is that I think the stigma involved has lessened appreciably. Um, I, I don't feel particularly stigmatized as somebody that had real problems with drugs and alcohol earlier in my life. I, I, I know that some people do, and I'm aware of that, but I would say that generally speaking, the amount of opprobrium which is heaped upon that afflicted group is is less than it's ever been certainly in my lifetime, which I think is a is a good thing. Uh, so so that that that's a very positive development. I'm less sanguine about um, the effectiveness of the various treatments, including AA, that we have, because I I, I just there, there's no magic bullet here. Recovery is a very complicated thing. Yeah, it really gives one pause. I have to tell you, it's a it's a it's a tough deal. I I personally was very lucky, and as were many of my friends. But I know lots of people that were not. I'm also interested in where do these where do these dollars go? So the, are the dollars coming from the Fed in the states and localities now? Are they flowing at a higher rate now than was the case before the opioid epidemic, as it's called, hit the front pages? Yeah. So there there um, there have been a there were a, there have been a couple of pieces of of legislation that have dedicated more money to it. But the the problem is that, um, and the, the problem, of course, is that these kind of like influx of money every time there's a crisis is a really ineffective way of dealing with the problem. So, you know, something like uh, insuring more people, you know, making sure more people have health insurance mm-hmm. that can cover addiction treatment is better than these kind of stopgap measures where we... Yeah. Yeah. pump a bun- bunch of money into treatment for two years and then yeah. hope that the right people can kind of get to the treatment in time. Right, right. Well, I mean, it afflicts such a large proportion of the population that maybe we should have something like unemployment insurance. We could have like drug addiction insurance. <laughs> Since you stand <laughs> a, apparently a, yeah. something like a one in 15 chance of, of yeah. being addicted to drugs or alcohol in your life, you can just pay a little yeah. bit every month from your paycheck <laughs> and hope it doesn't happen to you. <laughs> oh, you might be on It's actually not a bad idea, I think, yeah. really, to be honest with you. Because it is so common. You know, I mean, really, it's it's amazing how many people it afflicts. Well, I, I, we've taken up a lot of your time, Claire. I'm sorry we've taken up so much of your time. Um, and I want to uh, reserve the last couple of minutes to ask our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? 
Sure. Uh, thanks, Marshall. So um, my current, so currently, my job is uh, is teaching, as you said, teaching uh, medical medical students in a college of medicine. Um, and my next project is more education related. So um, I, I don't I don't know if you'd heard this, but they've added a new part to the medical college admissions test that's on the behavioral and social dimensions of medicine. Um, mm. And so mm. it's so pre-medical students are going to have to learn a little something about um, other factors that influence health. Um, mm. And the, the, there are a lot of sort of test prep books out there or videos about it, but I'm working on um, a kind of educational text that will be a reference for people who want to use cool. humanistic methods as, mm -hmm. to teach about behavioral dimensions of, of health and medicine. So cool. can we teach about these things using literature or art or history instead of using test prep videos on Khan Academy is the idea. Yeah, that's good. Although uh, videos are a good way to teach people. I got to say, when oh, I want to learn well, something hey, new I, these I, days, I, I, use video, video. I use videos all the time in my class, too. Um, but <laughs> but, I, I, but yeah, academic presses stop. don't want to publish them for some reason. No, they don't really want to publish videos. It's funny because I was just, well, this is a long time. But videos are good, though. Good way to teach people. Totally good way. I, I encourage you to keep using videos. And you can make them, you know. I, I, I made a bunch of I, my I do make yeah. them, actually. You can make them. Yep. Stick them on YouTube and millions of people will watch. <laughs> so there you go. Anyway, let me uh, tell everyone that we've been talking to Claire Clark about her wonderful book, The Recovery Revolution, The Battle Over Addiction Treatment in the United States, and what a battle it was and remains. So Claire, let me say thank you for writing the book, and thank you for appearing on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Marshall. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone that listens to the New Books Network and the various podcasts therein, we really appreciate your support and we appreciate your listening to our channels and I hope to talk to you soon. Bye-bye.